Wow! Welcome to This Here Wow, brought to you in part by the Jen Schulte team leading you home. This Here Wow is the podcast dedicated to highlighting entirely exceptional people, places, and things found right here, right under our noses in South Georgian Bay. I'm Dean Holland, the lucky so-and-so charged with the exceedingly pleasurable task of pulling that all together right here each week from the comfort of Studio 11. Now, I want to start things off this week by going on record and saying that it seems a bit odd to me that we even need to have an International Women's Day. Fact is, my life has been a steady stream and continues to be inundated with exceptional beings of the female persuasion. Certainly one of those people is my wife and partner of almost 25 years now, Gail. Now, when I think back through the chapters of my life, I have always had exceptional people doing exceptional things and often making an exceptional impact on my life. And I suppose I never considered that one's gender made any sort of difference in that exceptional contribution. Truth of the matter, whether you or I would like to admit it, being a girl, a woman, a female has usually made for a more challenging uphill road. Historically speaking, even our Western world society, for more years than not, has considered women to be either non- or second-class citizens with far less rights than their male counterparts. Yikes! I mean, how does such a thing even happen? Have I ever in any way been part of such a mindset? I hope to heck not. I certainly believe that I have always viewed the female species as an equal on as many levels as I can conjure up, my professional life certainly included. If I consider for a moment the four children my wife and I have made, even just the carrying and birthing details that she looked after, I'm feeling a bit like the weaker sex, I gotta tell you. I suspect many family men I know would agree. I am routinely part of a couple of arts-related groups that meet virtually every week. The vast majority of my counterparts are women. When I consider Liz, Rosalind, Susan, Victoria... Erica, Lori, Patrice, Heidi, Jen, Beverly, and Barb, and the talents, expertise, and smarts they're all bringing to the table each week, I'm sometimes feeling like the weak link. Speaking of which, there's a really great online arts meeting on March 17th that I'd love for you to attend. I'll be there, along with all the movers and shakers I just mentioned. Go to the This Here Wow podcast page on Facebook and get more information. Now, the unfortunate reality is that women have had to, and in so many ways continue to have to, fight that much harder for everyday successes, especially in the working world. Thus, just over a hundred years ago, the birth of an annually acknowledged, celebrated International Women's Day began. Thus, I have loaded the show this week with exceptional women. They weren't hard to find. Fact of the matter is, I fully expect that as this podcast continues to grow, The weeks and months ahead will be loaded with an equal number of women to men. But for this week, the episode belongs to the ladies. All of my guests today have something in common. They all recognized a need and have gone to great lengths to change things for the better. And as always is the case on this here wow, they're all from right here in SGB. Let's get to my first guest. This here, this here, this here. A few years ago, I crossed paths with a group on an outing at the Village at Blue. That group consisted of roughly 15 young adults, all with special needs, plus a spattering of chaperones or leaders. One of the staffers who knew me was eager to introduce me to the woman in charge of the whole deal. Her name? Shelley Higginson. 
Within a few months, I became involved with this group known as EFL, or Events for Life. I was teaching a bit of drama. Although my involvement over the last few years with EFL has been only intermittent, I have become increasingly impressed with its programming and its dedicated staffers and volunteers. So I reached out to Shelley for some insight into EFL. How, how did this all happen? How did you start all this? I was an educational assistant at Georgia Bay Secondary School, and our boys had got to an age where they didn't need, need me during the summer. And we were at that stage where it was like, well, what am I going to do for you know two months? So I saw the need of our special needs individuals that basically did nothing all summer. And so I approached a core group of individuals that were the Special Olympics, seven or eight people that I knew and said, you know, would you be interested in me running a, like a day camp during the summer? And they were all just like, wow, that'd be amazing. So uh, we, that summer we had six of them and I had a student that helped me and we did all kinds of things from our farm. So I, I would pick them up in the morning and then one parent would take them home at night. And uh, we did Katie market. We, you know, had a library visit. We did a lot of the things we did baking. We'd invited the parents here to come for dinner and uh, we had even a sleepover. So I did that for two summers. And then it became very clear that what, what we were doing, the growth was exponential. It went from six to the next summer being 12, had to hire Brenda to, to work for me. And uh, so many of them were starting to graduate and it became very clear that they were going into the world with nothing offered to them. And that's kind of where events for a life came, you know, that they needed things to continue to do for life, but nothing was being offered for them. There's no community living in the Thornberry area and there was no, there's no housing and there was no hope of anything like that. So Kath Butler and I started looking, uh, I guess it would have been the winter of 2016 for something within that community that the next summer we could have a program and we secured the Grace United Church. Okay. And, uh, and then we had a lot of really neat things happen. We had uh, Patty McFarlane uh, come on board and say, I'm going to give you $5,000 this year. And so it was basically a sole proprietorship that I started. And it became by the fall of 2016, that became very apparent for us to get any kind of funding or grants that we needed to uh, incorporate and to become a charitable organization. So we went through that process and I then became a, a paid employee rather mm -hmm. than a, and gave up that, which was great. Uh, we've always had an amazing board of directors that have been very supportive, very hands-on. And it was that fall um, that we, yeah, it was 2016, the fall of 2016, Patty did a great big uh, fundraiser. And that's where Mike Hutchings heard about us. And he said, uh, approached Kathy and myself, um, in that, that fall and said, would you be interested in making Beaver Creek Farm your home? And it was kind of like, what? <laughs> you know, and it, it was a big thing because there's a pond there. There's a lot of risk. And I guess by the spring of April of 2017, everything was in place. We were at that time, two days a week. So I'd basically taken a leave from the school board for, I think at that First, you know, each year I took one more day and one more day <laughs> and mm -hmm. then I had two years. And then last year I did retire from the, the school board. But um, so by the summer of 2017, um, Beaver Creek Farm became our home. 
and um, we're three days a week, summer, fall, the whole bit, you know, all yeah. year round. And you know, I've been there because I've been fortunate enough uh, to come in from time to time and do drama and things like that with your clientele. And, yes. um, and that place is magic. That farm is magic. And every time I walk into the door, there's always something different happening. It's, it's incredible how you yeah. guys do what you do there. Yeah, so from going from the church basement to, you know, doing crafts in there and hiding everything in uh, the closet until we arrived the, the next day or two and, you know, being to the, the farm and having our own workshop in the garage and, you know, it being our place, has, it just took us to another level. And that, that was really amazing. And it's given me the participants so much experience. And uh, I mean, there's still, we go to the arena to play pickleball. We go to Marsh Street to dance, you know, so we're out in the community. We usually have a library visit once a week. We're always out walking and uh, doing things and enjoying um, what the town of the Blue Mountains has to offer as well, which mm -hmm. has really been amazing. Well, and that's one of the things that really impressed me about your program from the time that I became involved. And, and I'm, I mean, my involvement is just a little tiny bit, but what I was always impressed at was that you were always out. You, your group is always out with these kids. And, and that's, not, that's not easy to do because it's a lot of people to shuffle around. Yeah, we've been really fortunate to um, secure two vehicles. So you know, typically prior to COVID, we were able to transport them with the help of volunteers and staffing that we have and um, really realize that inclusion is very important. And uh, for some of them, being involved in the community is a natural thing. For others, it's a real it's a challenge, right? If you're on the spectrum of autism, it's taking you out of your comfort zone. But And then there's those individuals that have never had any experiences and would say, I've never done this before. This is the first time I've done this. And uh, it might be tubing or, so we've just broadened their horizons, broadened their world and given them new experiences that without Events for Life, they would have never had it. For those who aren't familiar with EFL, you have a number of clients uh, of various ages and various placements on the spectrum. So, um, once a special needs student reaches the age of 21, there's no more formalized high school experience that ends. And, you know, typically they would continue on with college, university, or, you know, trades are important, but the opportunity to build life skills and independent living and engage in leisure and social activities is really, really limited for so many, anyone with special needs and especially in a rural community. So that's what a events for life has filled the gap with. And I think it's, in my opinion, it's supportive not only for the for the parents who, I mean, let's face it, if you have a special needs uh, child and they're with you 24-7, it's nice sometimes to get a break. But I think also as a father of four kids, <laughs> I don't think it's any different. I think, I think the offspring want to break from the parents too. <laughs> no kidding. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and through COVID, that's been really evident. You know, a lot of people have not um, had their participant 24-7 and it's been challenging for both participant and parent to be together all the time because they need socialization it's so mm -hmm. important they need friends they need community yeah how have you managed to make that shift because obviously it's been completely different there's been many places you can't go and obviously times that you can't meet as a big group so how have you managed to make this adjustment in the last you know 12 months now 
Um, so we have really just used our online program like we would at our normal events for life program. So for example, we have dance online, we have music, uh, we offer our healthy lifestyles, which is our social skills. Uh, we have cooking hub music. We even have our coffee coffee hub online where we invite guests to come in and join us. We go into breakout rooms, we have conversation and it's just really been awesome for the participants. We have individuals that didn't even know how to use an iPad and they have had to go full circle on how to turn it on. I remember the day after about two months, I did it myself today. I was able to get online all by myself. So it has been a learning curve. If you had told me a year ago right now, even that, you know, we would be having a virtual program, I would have said, oh gosh, no, they can't do that. You know, that that's asking too much. But when people have been forced to do it I guess basically if and and then there's been individuals that thought well this isn't for my participant you know they're not the kind of individual that will sit in front of a computer but we're up we're moving you know they go to this what I call gamers guild and we go in and we play games and it might be a scavenger hunt throughout your house they're up moving running and having a lot of fun and it's been social you know, some days yeah. they'll say, oh, I missed you so much. I said, but you're seeing me right now. Here I am. You know, this is the best of the best, mm-hmm. even during COVID. So yeah. then when we were able to go to, uh, I guess it would have been the yellow zone, we started an outdoor experience where participants are able to meet in their community pods and mm-hmm. go out for outdoor experience and walk in the community. And as of Christmas, we piloted a fourth school and was to start in January and then we were in lockdown again. So it just started two weeks ago and we've hired Free Spirit and Free Spirit uh, comes in and at events for life, we do an outdoor um, nature school for the participants for two hours every afternoon for each pod group and we've had a foundation sponsor this and it's been just amazing so we've really pivoted I think amazingly I think we've learned from this that you really as as I was listening to webinars one person said don't even get in the box you know just think how what you've learned from this and how you can really really learn from it in the for the present and for the future as well I think we will continuously have an online program because there are those that will benefit from that for life. And, and then how can we change it up so that we continue to have smaller groups? Because I think the future holds that for a long time and masks. And so we really, really have to diversify a little bit more again in our delivery. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I think that the program is spectacular. Every time I walk into that farm, it, the, the vibe in there that you have created is top drawer. And I, and I think it's great. And I think you're great. And I'm so grateful um, that you've done this. Well, it's certainly not my, just myself. It's certainly um, the community and staff and, uh, you know, the families. As, as we all say, it's the EFL family. So there's a, a lot of links in that family. I think you would agree that we are so very fortunate to have Shelley Higginson, EFL, and all those that make up the EFL family in our community. If you'd like more information, perhaps you'd like to support EFL or become a volunteer, or perhaps you know someone who might benefit from EFL's exceptional programming, go to eventsfor.life. Shelley tells me that that website is full of pictures and information about all the things they do. And of course, I will post that information on my Facebook page. This here, this here, this here, wow, wow, wow. 
And that, my friends, signals what I call a This Here Wow throwback, where I celebrate someone exceptional who is not with us anymore. This particular individual will take us to the world of politics. If you happen to find in your wallet a $10 bill issued in 2017, marking the 150th birthday of Canada, you'll find on one side of that banknote four noteworthy Canadians. Only one is a woman, and she was from right here in the South Georgian Bay area, Gray County to be precise. I'm referring, of course, to Agnes McPhail. Exactly a century ago this year, Ms. McPhail became the very first woman elected to the House of Commons in Canada. She was a fierce advocate of the working class, especially farmers. I really didn't know a whole lot about Agnes McPhail, I must admit, so I reached out to the South Gray Museum and chatted with its curator, Robert Ian Torno. It was actually because of Viola Desmond being talked about in the last month uh, and some parallels being drawn or some mention of Agnes McPhail that I thought, oh, I need to talk about this woman. I mean, I think it's, it's spectacular, of course, what she accomplished. It was huge. Oh, yeah. She, Agnes, Agnes took no guff. Uh, she came from a time where, again, women still weren't considered persons in Canada. And she, she had to fight very hard just to go to high school and get off the farm. And the paradigm at the time was, well, if women who are in the house and rearing the children and doing the house things, if they get out into society and start fulfilling roles, well, the family will crumble. The very bedrock of our society, like what's possible, what's going to happen? And Agnes was massively politically incorrect. And she called it as she saw it. And it's because of that, that she had a sharp wit and she had a fire in her guts, clearly, which is why we're talking about her. She made a, a really big difference. She earned respect, even from people that wouldn't even consider uh, the opinion of not just of not just a woman, but as like of a farmer. Mm -hmm. She did it. She it was pretty profound. She made a big effect. And she went to school just in, in Owen Sound, didn't she? She did. She went to high school in Owen Sound. She begged and pleaded with her parents to let her go to high school. It took her two years to convince her parents to let her go to high school. It was a big sacrifice for a farming family uh, to let go one of their children that otherwise would tend the farm. But uh, she was pretty persuasive and she did that. And she actually, she learned quite a bit when she was up in Owen Sound. She learned the, the differences in paradigms, at least at the time, between farm people and town people. And... Yeah, she got a taste for uh, for education. Then she became a teacher for 10 years. Yeah, she went to school up in Owen Sound. She taught around. She taught in Honeywood as well. Okay. I, and I'm pretty sure that I read that she essentially, she she left the area, but then she ended up coming back to the area. She did. She went down to, uh, went down to Stratford for her education. And uh, her first teaching post was in uh, Port Elgin. And she made her way around for schools um, for about 10 years. She didn't much like school. There's an anecdote it's funny. She didn't like people in authority that were there because reasons. You can bleep this, but she had no nose for bullshit. There was a, an anecdote where uh, her teacher, I'm not sure at which school, but uh, her feet were sticking out into the aisle and she, uh, her teacher was walking by and he tripped over her feet. And he said, Agnes, now I wonder why I tripped over your feet. And she said, well, it's probably because you have huge feet. That kind of thing. I'm, I'm sure that went over very well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, she didn't like, she really de developed a, um, a reputation for fighting for the underdogs. 
So women, obviously, she wanted equality for women. She didn't want any more, any less. She wanted women to be treated as individuals, uh, just as men were. She said in, in one of her speeches that uh, women were not the goods or chattels of men. So to be the, like, to be the very first, she was one of 244 uh, members of parliament. Yeah. And the only woman for 15 of 19 years. That's, that's really crazy. I mean, that's a huge, huge accomplishment. Huge. Yeah, absolutely. She was uh, treated as a, as a novelty. And instead of commenting on the things that she was saying, the press would comment on the things she was wearing. She was a, a, a school marm spinster. She was wearing the same blue dress. You know, her hemline was, beneath, was below her, uh, her sensible coat and she wore shoes that were comfy instead of fancy. That was a big deal. Is that, is that actually what they were writing about her? Actually that, yeah. Can you imagine that? Like, think about it. Dean says something, it's like, psst, that blonde guy. Wow. Like, who's going to listen to a guy with a goatee, right? That's, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Now, this month is actually really a big deal as well, because it was, it was 100 years ago this year, uh, she was um, uh, in the House of Commons. Yes, she was elected in, in December of 1921. Okay. And she campaigned like crazy. Maybe we should start a little bit earlier to give some context. Please. Okay. So she was born in a log, she was born in a log house in Proton Township, Gray County, uh, 1890. And she was born to a Scottish farming family. Uh, they were, uh, they were called middlings because they were farmers that had kind of transitioned from pioneer life into kind of the middle-class farmer life at the time. And her father eventually became an auctioneer. Uh, and her mother was very sensitive about being considered poor. She really resented that. And a very stern, very stern mother. It's probably where, um, where Agnes got her backbone. But it's also, reading into it, probably what repelled her from, uh, from staying at home all the time and kind of becoming her own person. Uh, one of three sisters, and they grew up poor. So she grew up doing farm work and seeing how hard it was for people working with their hands. And she thought that farmers were getting a raw deal, that tariffs and uh, banks and middlemen were uh, basically taking advantage of the, of the farming community. So yeah, that led her to, to join the uh, United Farmers of Ontario. And that's the party under which she ran in, okay. uh, in 1921. And her parents were upset about it. Okay, as farmers, why were they upset about it? Well, they were happy as far they were happy as uh, as farmers, I would guess. But the fact that she was a woman was sensational. This simply was not done. Like so, at this time, it's post-war. There's increasing uh, socialist sentiment among the populace, and here's Agnes, and she's basically became a, an organizer. That that was her entree into the party. She had gone down to Toronto uh, to write for a paper called The Farmer's Son. S-U-N. Uh, it was through that that she started organizing rallies. And that's when she learned that she could really command a crowd. They said that she had a, a voice that sounded like a viola. You know, I have to say that I'm, I'm almost, I'm a bit surprised that the party welcomed her in, given the times. So the party welcomed her in because she was so influential. But then after she won, they actually asked her to step down. They said, okay, we, you know, you get it. You proved your point. Would you mind stepping down? They, yeah. Were they taking a bit of flack for it? Or what was it? Was it just the wrong type of attention? Well, I mean, she was getting the job done. So what was the issue? Sometimes when you're the first and there's no precedent, there's no, I mean, how do you, 
how do you judge how you're doing? I guess it was just so novel and so sensational. Mm -hmm. It would be hard for us to, to find a parallel right now. I mean, this comes from a time when people were like, she would have been treated as a, as a lesser than, you know, as a hysterical woman, not as someone who had, you know, opinions to contribute. Yeah, and she is, I'm, and I'm looking at her, the, the seats that she held. I'm a member of Ontario Provincial Parliament, 1948 to 1951. Also 1943 to 1945. Member of the Canadian Parliament for Grey Bruce, 1935 to 1940. Uh, member of Canadian Parliament for Grey Southeast, uh, 1921 to 1935. It's an impressive list. And it wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, you know, a one-off. She was there for the long haul. She was, and she was very, she was very, very popular among her constituents because she represent, she actually, she was one of them. She came from farming roots and she understood at a very base level what it was like to be, what it was like to, to work until exhaustion, what it was like to feel like you had no representation. Yeah. Um, she was also the uh, MPP in the riding of uh, York East down in Toronto. That was later in her career. That was later in her career. We will be unveiling a, this year a mural dedicated to Agnes McPhail uh, on the south side of our museum. Oh, great. Yeah. We have a, a four foot by four foot uh, barn quilt slash mural dedicated to Agnes McPhail commemorating 100 years of her election. Pretty cool. And it's nice. It has uh, Agnes McPhail, an image of her right after she was elected. So she's in her early 30s. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's colorful. Um, a lot of kids hang out in the, the park as well. So it's important that, you know, if you can make someone iconoclast, if you can help usher them in as a symbol, as an icon of what it is that they represent. Yeah, you, you ensure their posterity. It's cool. Now, I got to tell you, speaking of images, um, I have seen some of those images of Agnes McPhail, uh, some photographs of her, and she doesn't look like anybody you'd want to mess around with. Oh, she looks pretty, Yeah. So in, in our museum, when you walk in, we have a big quote from Agnes McPhail written on the wall. Agnes McPhail championed underdog causes. She went to uh, Cape Breton in the 30s. There was a coal miner strike. And when she got back to, par uh, to Parliament, she really spoke out about what it is that these people were dealing with. And she said, you know, I go there and I see these people and the coal miners work uh, for 14 hour days and they come home to sick children and no electricity and open sewers and she says you know you have a fear of you know people getting red well i'll tell you if i had to stay there any longer i would have gotten a lot redder so these are not popular things to say in you know a parliament that is concerned with pomp circumstance fitting into your box here's an amazing fact of, of agnes mcphail that i just found out and i found was very endearing when she started as an MP, her salary was $4,000. She objected to that salary and she said, I will not take a penny more than 2,500. The rest is stolen money. And she donated back 1,500 bucks. That's badass. She drove around in her car while campaigning after her first election that would break down repeatedly. She gave 54 campaign speeches and when her car would break down, she'd still carry on on foot. We're talking fire in her belly here. I know I did not realize how, you know, how strong of a woman and, and again, forward thinking and such a fighter she was. And uh, I tell you, probably more than anything, I admire Agnes's uh, ability to just sort of shoot from the hip and say, you know, this is right and this is wrong and that's the end of it and we need to fix this. End of story. Right on. Absolutely. That is exactly why I think she's such an important person.
Perfect. Well, you know what? Thank you so, so much for talking to me and for enlightening me. Oh, uh, thank you. It was uh, great hashing it out. Keep on keeping on. Okay. Thanks so much. Take care. What a fabulous fella to speak with about Agnes Noguff MacPhail. <laughs> Quite an impressive woman she was. Left this world in 1954 at the age of 63. If you'd like more information about Ms. MacPhail or anything related to history in the Gray County area, just go to southgraymuseum.ca. And of course, I'll post that on the This Here While podcast with Dean Holland Facebook page. Thanks again to museum curator Robert Ian Torno for chatting with me. Now, just before we move along to our next guest, here's another local wow to consider for just a moment. Jen Schulte, real estate broker with Century 21 Millennium Inc. Brokerage. Gotta say, I've known Jen for most of the 22 years she's been creating her entirely exceptional, thriving, top-producing Jen Schulte team right here in SGB. And what never ceases to impress me is her seemingly endless energy and that drive that she carries with her and shares with others. Fact is, it took Jen about five minutes to jump on board and become a key part of bringing this here wow to your ears each week. Why? Because both of us know that South Georgian Bay is so very exceptional in so very many ways. Both of us share in the mantra, SGB, the place to be. So, if you're looking to build your wealth through real estate investing, or if you're looking to buy or sell anywhere in SGB, Jen and her team will help you sell smart and buy smarter. Guaranteed. You can find her on Facebook, Instagram, or go to jenscholteteam.com. This here, wow. Consider this bit of text, if you will. The Order of Ontario is the province's highest honor. It is reserved for Ontarians from all fields of endeavor and backgrounds whose excellence has left a lasting legacy in the province, Canada, and beyond. Members of the Order are a collective of Ontario's finest citizens whose contributions have shaped and continue to shape the province's history and place in Canada. In 2019, one of our own, Lisa Ferrano, was made a member of the Order of Ontario. Although our paths only occasionally cross, I've known Lisa for most of my years here in South Georgian Bay, and I have to say that when I heard of her appointment, I wasn't entirely surprised. This is a woman I know to be very driven, very passionate, and very determined. Through her charity Elephant Thoughts, Lisa and her partners have and continue to make inroads into understanding and whenever possible addressing inequalities regarding race, culture, and education. I simply had to reach out to Lisa to both congratulate her and to understand her journey a bit more. So this is like, this is a big deal. Order of Ontario is a big deal. Is it? I mean, yeah, because they've had like, you know, since it started in 87, they've had like 800 inductees. Uh, you know, the population of Ontario is like over 14 million people. And so, you know, you're a, a, one of a select bunch. Okay. And I got names like, you know, Hazel McCallion's on there, Moses Nimer, Margaret Atwood, Chris Hadfield, Al Waxman, Ken wow. Danby. Like you are honorable. Oh, I Hillary. love Ken Danby. Yeah. <laughs> honorable Hillary Weston. Like yeah. you are like this crazy people on this list and you're on the list. So. Oh my God, Dean, you're, what do you, I, I, uh, now I'm all, <laughs> oh my God, what happened? <laughs> no, it's great. Good for you. And out of a bunch of categories, of course, we're talking arts, community service, law, business, uh, medicine, science, and your category, education. 
Right. You know, when this first happens, of course, it's, it's, it's stunning and for me, shocking. I thought this was mostly for scientists and, um, you know, journalists and engineers and inventors, you know, people like this. Um, I didn't think that the work that I did honestly actually had a category other than, you know, Elephant Thoughts is clearly a children's education charity. Mm-hmm. Um, but a big part of this is the work that I do personally, um, helping non-Indigenous people just understand more or, or what we call other Canadians understand more about newcomers to Canada, Indigenous peoples in Canada, you know, because to me, this has been my, all, pretty much my lifelong journey since, well, university and before, Mm-hmm. Um, to just have a better handle on, quite frankly, racism and the incidence of racism and why, where does this all come from? You know, we're not born with these thoughts swirling around in our heads. Nope. We learn them from family, from friends, from peers in the playground, from community, from all of these things. So it's always been uh, a very keen interest of mine because I don't understand the, the lack of fairness. Um, I don't understand the lack of equity. I, I can't figure it out. I still can't figure it out. So I'm trying to unpack it and disseminate it and everything that I can do to help myself to understand it, to help others to understand it. Yeah. So, so, it, sounds, so it sounds to me like this that's was a something, category. That's a category. <laughs> that's a category. I could never, I, well, what? <laughs> well, it sounds to me like this was something that was just always a part of you. It was, it was, in, it's really interesting, Dean. Actually, I, I went to Dalhousie University and I took political science and economics and political science component was global politics was, um, and I, I learned all about global awareness and global understanding. And I wanted to work at the time. I thought my dream job would be to work at the UN. Oh, and okay. I, and, 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 you know, I wanted to go to India. I wanted to swim in the Ganges river. I wanted, I, I had all of these great grand ideas that we have in university. And I left to start a business to be, you know, be a good Canadian capitalist, left university. And that's, that was my, and that's kind of, I guess the, the incidences of my life and the, 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 um, my family and all those influences that were on me were, no, you need to make some money, girl. You need to have a career. You need to put aside these values that you hold so dearly because you got to buy a house. You're going to raise a family one day, whether you, you know, husband, no husband, you're still, you're going to be self-sufficient. This is my generation. So I, I did set those values aside. And ironically, the UN became our version with a heck of a lot less red tape, which is elephant thoughts of the United Nations. Think mm-hmm. about you know, think about it. Yeah. Um, and I did swim in the Ganges, but I did it where the Ganges originates in the, in the Himalayas and it's glacier water and it's bloody freezing, but it's really clean. <laughs> wow. Yeah. As opposed to, as opposed the, to the Ganges that isn't so clean. <laughs> So, you know, it came around and I mean, my gratitude for that day when I was at a Rotary meeting and I'm a longtime Rotarian when my best friend and colleague Jeremy Rhodes dropped in to the meeting to do give us a presentation on his trip that he had been doing with a group of monks through Southeast Asia. And he had this dream in his mind to create a new kind of charity where we could support education and enable education in the most remote communities of the world, because that will grow into equity. Education equals equity. And, give, and having these opportunities for education, particularly in remote geographic 
and socioeconomically challenged locations where, you know, schools are just few and far between um, was where we started to work. So we were working in India and Nepal and Tanzania and Nicaragua and even China. We worked in China after the, the earthquake there. These were, this is where our focus was, but all the while we were very invested in supporting teachers and supporting the education process in indigenous communities. Because again, remote, um, this is in our backyard and we saw a great need, you know, and, and uh, in remote communities in Canada. So this is, this was our focus, but um, we found uh, over the years doing this work that quite honestly, it's very complicated to work around the world. No question, it's complicated to work in your own backyard. You've worked with governments of, you've worked with municipal governments, mm -hmm. you know, like provincial governments. Try doing that around the world with all of their municipal, provincial and federal and all, you know, it's a lot. So we found that developing the focus of enabling kids in Canada, students in Canada to become better global citizens and, and develop these values of inclusivity, of diversity, of equity, that's you're now developing these future leaders. And they can go forth and work in their own backyards, in their in their own country. They can work around the world, and so that's what we've we've kind of grown into after 20 years of developing thoughts. You know, developing these values and developing this education here at home, and enabling these kids to, to you know head out and and do what they, you know, what they can do, what, yeah. what they can do with all this. So yeah, right now I'm I'm you know I'm still very active in Rotary. Um, but let's face it, the ro Rotary is like any other organization in the world. It's full of, of people that have limited understanding of the realities of the world that we live in. And they see their own uh, Rotarians. You know, you, you and I are both, you've been a Rotarian. We are the kind of people that want to, want to do good. Um, service above self is definitely something that is, you know, it's held in high regard. But we just jump in. We jump in with both feet, you know, <laughs> we're going to hit the ground running. We're going to fix this problem without understanding the real stories behind those people that we're trying to help, that we're trying to fix. And this is a global development issue, a, a pervasive global development issue, um, not understanding the communities that we're working in service of. Well, like the, the most important thing that anyone can understand with respect to service above self or living in the service of others is we're not doing that for ourselves. We, if you're doing it for yourself, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You, you, we're doing this work for others. So you get your own agenda out of it and really, really dig in and listen to what these people that you are working in aid of have to say to you. Are they asking you for help? Are they asking you for help? And that is a lesson that I have to continue to learn and understand. And unfortunately, I've got great friends that continue to remind me, you know, that I had a, a woman that I spoke those words to me not too long ago. She works in the service of others down in, uh, in the Bahamas. You know, Lisa, some, a client said to me the other day, I didn't ask you for this help in this particular area. And she's like, oh, you know what? you're right. I'm, I'm giving you all the advice in the world. You didn't ask me for it. <laughs> That's really important. So when we're, when we're trying to do our very best and help communities, whether it's around the world or indigenous communities, you really do have to sit back and ask yourself, did they ask for this help? Yeah, we do, we do need, to, we need to ask more questions and then yeah. listen to the answer. 
rather than race in like gangbusters because we, as you say, we, we feel they have a problem, we can fix it, yeah. I can fix it, we have money, we have resources. Yeah, but that's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Fixing someone else's problem with your money and your resources is, is incredibly unsustainable. Yeah. So, you know, that, so that's lesson number one. Took us, you know, took me until today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that this little chit chat is, has continued to, to evolve you. <laughs> well, that's great. You know what? I think, I know that what you have done has been uh, exemplary and I, uh, I, I commend you and I, and I think it's really great. And thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much for even asking. I really appreciate this time with you as I always do. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> and there you have it. Lisa Ferrano, a force to be reckoned with and another wow that SGB is so very lucky to have. Congratulations again on her appointment to the Order of Ontario. If you'd like more information on Elephant Thoughts and the various programming and such that they offer or to get in touch with Lisa, go to elephantthoughts.com. I'll post the Elephant Thoughts website link on the This Here Wow Facebook page. This here, this here, this here, wow. I simply need to do a bit of a shout out at this point in the show. Truth of the matter is that I'd wanted to have as a guest on this week's show a lady that I've known since 2005 when I directed her and actor Ted Follows in a show called The Gin Game. This lady who's called Clarksburg her home for much longer than that. Araby Lockhart. As you probably are well aware, all of my interviews, given the current COVID-19 state of things, are done via the internet. Well, Araby just doesn't do that. She's not an internet sort of girl. Araby is 94. She is most definitely one of this country's most senior actors. My membership number with the Canadian Actors Equity Association, which I got 25 years ago, is in the 12,000s. Araby's is somewhere around 100. Yeah, seriously. Retired for a, a number of years now, although I coaxed her out of that retirement a couple of years back to share the stage with me in a two-person show called Vigil. Yeah, that was when she was 92. We ran that show for two weeks at the Marsh Street Center in Clarksburg. She graduated from U of T in the mid-1940s, has shared the stage with the likes of William Hutt and Christopher Plummer, and the screen with folks like Angela Lansbury and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Additionally, she's the mother of five children, at least four of which also made the entertainment world their livelihood. Araby is about as full of piss and vinegar as just about any woman I know. She is a wow and part of SGB. And I look forward to when I might lunch again with you in person, Araby. At this point, I'd like to thank all my guests on this week's podcast. Appreciate your taking the time to chat with me and for adding something really exceptional to the SGB landscape. Thank you so much. We are all very lucky to be here in this wonderful place called SGB. Of course, I have an entirely different bunch of wows to bring your way next week. There is certainly no shortage of them. Now, if you have any questions or comments, or perhaps there's a wow that you think should be on my radar, please send me an email. Dean at thisherewow.com will get that job done. You can also go to my website, deanholland.com. That's Dean, H-O-L-L-I-N. Com. Would love to hear from you. Thanks so much to the Jen Schulte team for being my title sponsor. Jen Schulte, real estate broker with Century 21 Millennium Inc. Brokerage. And for more information, you can go to jenschulteteam.com. Thanks also to my technical producer, Ben McCulley, for cutting and pasting the show together so nicely. 
Thanks also to my favorite IT guy, Mitchell. Special thanks to Ash. Love to G. And really big thank you to you, too. I look forward to us being together again next week for another installment of This Here Wow. Until then, I'm Dean Holland. Wow.